It's great to welcome our kids' church with us, and it's particularly great to uh, welcome Claire Estonia, who's going to uh, just lead the next part of our service. Thank you, Claire. Um, first of all, just thank you so much for um, your welcome. Um, it is a genuine, genuine joy and privilege to be here before you today. We actually flew in yesterday morning um, and had a lovely sleep yesterday afternoon, so we're getting towards being refreshed and ready to go. Um, but yeah, genuinely, thank you. I know some people have come here, especially today, um, to hear about MFA, um, and I get the, the treat of being able to give you uh, an update so this is Mechanics for Africa. When I was given a brief, I was asked to give a little bit of the history, because um, maybe not all of, all of you here have been um, on the MFA journey. Um, MFA, of course, being Mechanics for Africa. Um, but this is us. Um, this is the, the main college um, building. Um, and where are we? Um, it's, we are in... We are in... Which, which continent is that? Awesome, well done, Africa. And within Africa, we are in Zambia, awesome. And within Zambia, uh, is this going to work? We are in the Copper Belt, brilliant, thank you, and um, in Andola. Um, so we are, Lusaka's the capital, we are five hours drive um, on, um, I wouldn't say amazing highways, um, five hours drive north of Lusaka. Um, yeah, so that's where we are, in the Copper Belt, in the industrial heartland um, of Africa. And what do we do? Well, this is uh, some of our students from this year. We have 74 students at the minute, and we teach them um, motor vehicle mechanics. Um, we teach them a City and Guilds two-year diploma in motor vehicle mechanics, um, and we, these are great guys. So we take young men and women. We have currently have six women, four in our second year, about to graduate, two in our first year. Um, and we um, take them through the program. And we focus on the, the underprivileged. So we focus on those who would not be able to afford tertiary education. And to put that into a little bit of context... Um, our second years go on industrial attachment. Many of them are going, actually, they start on Monday. And when they go on their attachment, we try and send them to really good companies. Um, we don't want them to go to Joe Bloggs Mechanics down the road. We want them to go to places where they're going to learn really well. And we allocated um, one of our students um, a place, and they came to us and said, actually, please, can I stay here for my placement because if I don't come here and get food, I'm not going to eat for the day. Um, so that gives you some of the context of the students who we are working with. Um, and so we decided to, so she will be staying with us for, our, for her placement this year. Um, because she'll get food for the six weeks that she's on placement. So we try and target those under underprivileged, um, those who couldn't afford education, and we give them a really excellent education. Um, so these are some of the, the photos. Um, you'll see um, the workshop, the guys sorting tools um, in the bottom corner, um, tools that we'd had donated. Um, and the other picture at the bottom is um, Nash, our head lecturer, um, giving the, the guys an introduction um, to their um, assessment. 
But it's not just about mechanics, okay? So Mechanics for Africa, we teach um, our guys much more. We are focused on the whole person, because actually we believe that it's the whole person that's important, okay? So we do sport every week, okay? We do sport every week. We teach them first aid. Um, we teach them computing. This year we recruited a, an IT um, lecturer for the first time, and so we've upped the IT program. Um, we've renovated the computer lab, and now students have access to the internet for the first time. And that's kind of revolutionized our teaching. It's revolutionized kind of how students um, access information. We also teach agriculture. Okay, so we recognize in Zambia there's a huge culture of um, people having growing maize, growing crops to feed themselves for sustenance, for sustenance sorry. Um, and so they will have a plot, and actually we want them to make the most of their plot so that they can feed their families. And so we teach them good agricultural practices. And then the photo actually with me in it is that we teach English. That's, that's my, um, my contribution to the teaching, um, is um, we teach our second years English. Um, all our lessons are in English, but our exams are in English too. And they need to be able to read and write English in order to pass their exams. Um, and they can already read and write English, but I'm there to kind of add the polish to, you know, to, to get them ready for their exams. So there's a lot in a week's timetable. Okay? Our timetable is very full. Um, they start at 8 and they finish at um, 4 every day. This was an amazing day that I wanted to just share. So as well as our package, what we're trying to get our students to do is look beyond their own situations as well. And this year we teamed up with an organization we work closely with called Beyond Ourselves, who work with smaller children in um, community schools. And they wanted to host a football day for their community schools and said, look, we need helpers. So we said, brilliant. So we worked together at the stadium and all of our students got involved in the day. So they were helping um, the next generation. They were helping the small children um, who, who go to community schools. And that's one of our students carrying one of their injured children at the stadium, um, which was just awesome. But at the end of the day, that was the top photo, but at the end of the day, all of our guys got to play football on the main Undola Stadium um, pitch. And my goodness me, that was a, a fabulous day. And this was obviously the celebratory um, lift at, at, the, at the end. Um, yeah. So that was, that was the type of thing that we're trying to do. We're trying to broaden out um, what we're doing just to give these guys um, yeah, a, a big, the big picture. But we are rooted in Christianity. We are um, unashamedly a, a Christian college. Um, and we have a pastor who comes in two days a week to do Bible study, um, to mentor the guys, to meet with them one-on-one, -on -one, to kind of administer um, to um, more personal and spiritual needs. Um, and I show this picture. Um, I took this spontaneously. I was walking um, past the classroom. This is the, the classroom that we have. Um, and it was um, this time last, no, December last year, sorry, the City and Guilds exams. So the week of the exams. And I walked past the classroom at eight hours, eight o'clock in the morning. Um, and it was an hour before the exam. And these students were in there praising. 
Um, an hour before, I'm not sure how many schools in the UK would have students spontaneously offering praise um, before an exam, but this is what they were doing. Um, and um, yeah, it kind of, it moved me to tears. Actually, I had to kind of step away um, and so that they wouldn't see me. Um, so yeah, so we are rooted in faith. We are rooted in um, Christ and, every, and that flows through, through everything that we do. Okay. We also get to meet our sponsors. So we had a sponsors day a couple of weeks ago, about four weeks ago now. Um, every one of our students has to have a local sponsor. Um, as well as the um, amazing support that actually we get from people like yourselves, um, we, all of our students have to have a local sponsor and we get to meet them to talk about um, their students' progress, um, how they're getting on, any issues that they may be facing. Um, but I love that photo, so I just wanted to put that in. So, as well as the mechanics, the studying of mechanics, we have a workshop. And actually, one of the things that um, Jason and I have been uh, leading on is to develop the commercial side, the commercial aspect of the workshop, to kind of raise more, obviously raise more finances, but also to show our students exactly what a commercial workshop should be, um, and uh, to give them really great experience in that. Um, over the time we've seen um, the commercial, over the last few years, the commercial side of things has grown quite a lot um, through investment in things like the fancy wheel alignment kit that we got, got this year, thanks to um, generous donors and supporters. Um, it's actually the best equipment on the market, um, which is brilliant. Um, and yeah, and that's Madsen is one of our senior mechanics um, working on a vehicle. So anybody in Andola, anybody in the, the area can come and have their vehicles repaired. Um, our first years, we don't allow them near customers' vehicles, um, but our second years under supervision um, can work with customers' vehicles, so they get a really broad range um, of experience. Um, our first years tend to work in the practical lab um, that we built um, this year as well. Um, okay, But we can't do it alone. Okay, Jason and I are supported by 19 now um, uh, staff who are on contract with us. Um, that ranges from our mechanics, um, to guards, to our cook, um, to our lecturers, to our IT teacher, to our buildings and grounds maintenance team. Um, yeah, so we have 19 colleagues and we are so privileged to have each and every one of them. Um, we actually quite genuinely have a really great team um, of um, solid um, Christian guys um, and ladies. And actually those of you who have followed the MFA journey may recognize some of the faces, um, may recognize some of the faces there. Actually most of them have been here, far, been with MFA far, far longer than Jason and I. Um, and some of them since the inception of Mechanics for Africa from when Charlie and Sharon started it back in 2002. Um, so actually 2017 is the 15th anniversary of Mechanics for Africa, um, which is a real testament to um, the devotion of people in this church um, to Charlie and Sharon and to all the work um, that's gone on over, over that time. And we're just seeing huge blessing. We're seeing huge, um, huge progress. We're seeing things um, going on. But it doesn't always go well. Um, so this was um, a year ago now, Jay. Um, 
there's just no words to describe what chaos this this was. Um, so basically, um, we had a, a load of stone delivered to start um, a building, um, and it um, kind of went off the path, and it was rainy season, and it got stuck. And then they sent the spider to catch the fly, and the, the spider got stuck. And then they sent the, what's next in the story? I don't know, the, the mouse or the whatever to catch the spider, to catch the fly, and then that got stuck. Um, and um, yeah, actually I will use this. Why's that? No, I can't. But you can see the bottom picture. I mean, these, these, these tires were that high, and they were completely submerged. And it took us three days, I think, to get, to get it out. Um, yeah. So, you know, things don't always go well. Um, you know, we have issues with process. Um, there's, you know, things take so long in Africa sometimes um, to get done. Um, and, you know, sometimes things can be more challenging um, than perhaps we think they need to be. Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting one. But MFA overall um, is really exciting. We love it. Um, it's hard work, um, but we genuinely do love it. Um, and the success is um, in the guys who graduate. Um, this year we had 100% um, pass. Every single one of our graduates, of our students who sat their exams passed, and that's a first in MFA history. And what we are seeing now is second and third kind of generation, if you like, um, people, of people coming through. So this was Faxon, the guy in the cap and gown was Faxon, a really, really awesome guy. Not the highest academic achiever, but he, by brute effort, um, he, he made it. And next to him is his brother, who graduated from MFA um, five or six years ago and is now a successful mechanic working for FQM, which is basically one of the biggest companies in Zambia. Um, and actually his brother paid for him um, his, his part of the fees. And we're seeing that now coming through and coming through and coming through. So when I say that Mechanics for Africa makes a difference, it makes a huge difference because you're not just changing the lives of one person, you're changing the lives of one person and their family for generations and generations and generations and generations to come. So although we can say, you know, 250 people have graduated MFA, you may think that that's a small number, but it's not. It's 250 families' lives who have been changed permanently you know, for, forever. Um, and um, that's an incredible, incredible testimony. Um, so yeah, so that, I love that photo. And this was graduation this year. Um, the, all of the guys celebrating um, in style. And Zambians really, really, really know how to celebrate. <laughs> really know how to celebrate. So that's where we are, um, but we're not standing still. Um, this, um, actually these guys, so Jason and I um, helped out, and there's Ruben there as well, um, our two boys here, um, and um, we helped out at a, a local fun race day, um, and there were some corporate sponsors who, who went along, um, and whilst we were there, some of our old students were running in the race with their companies, with their corporate companies. Um, and they just came up and said, ah, oh, madame, 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 it's so good to see you. Um, and it was really great to see them because they are working and they were running for their employer and taking part. Actually, they won, which was even better. Um, <laughs> so they, they are holding, holding the trophy, or rather Ruben's holding the trophy. Um, so that's, you know, that's our measure of success. 
It's, um, our measure of success, of course, is how many people graduate, but actually it's a step beyond that. It's, it's, it's how many of our guys get into jobs, how many of our guys get into jobs acting with integrity. Um, and we have employers now who phone Jason up and ask, say, look, we've got a space and we want a Mechanics for Africa student. And we have companies now whose policy is only to employ Mechanics for Africa students because of the, the integrity um, the, and the discipline um, that we build into them. Um, so when lessons start at eight, we mean eight o'clock. And if they're late, they, they do a little bit of you know, work in the garden. Um, <laughs> and actually in the first, first years for the first term really don't enjoy being at Mechanics for Africa, but then they learn that actually it's probably better to be on time at eight o'clock. So that's us now, but what next? Um, we are growing, and we've um, kind of termed this year, if you like, gearing for growth. Um, the, the top photo is a new ablution block. Basically, our, our ablution, our toilet facilities were um, not great, um, and so they are getting a significant um, and very welcome uplift. Um, the bottom photo is a new classroom block. Um, which we received a grant for um, from the Bike Trust, um, and that will be hopefully finished kind of early next year. Because um, at the minute we only have one classroom, so we're restricted to student numbers. And what we want to do is grow from um, two classes each of 35 um, to four classes each of 25. Um, ideally, so we can reduce the class sizes, give better focus, even better focus to our students, um, but actually have more students overall. Um, and, and having a new classroom block will facilitate that. Um, and that's all been made possible through donations. The photograph on the right um, is um, a new borehole going in um, that was done. Those of you who have been following the MFA journey will know that we fundraised for um, a, a new borehole. That went in... Um, earlier the year, and um, yeah, thanks to your generous, generous support, we got all of the money that we needed for it. And what it means now um, is that we are fully, fully self-sufficient with water. Um, so when our bills went up from £40 a month to £200 a month when they put us on a water meter, actually now it costs us £1 a month. And we are fully self-sufficient. Um, and again, that's just thanks to, um, thanks to the support that you give. And that's it. That's all I have to say, really. Um, but if anybody has any questions, look, please feel free. Um, actually, one thing about, about living in Zambia, um, and I, I forgot to say this at the start. At the start. So Daniel and Ruben, I, um, do you want to come up and share what you like about living in Zambia? No? We talked about this yesterday, didn't we? Yeah, so I asked them, what do they like about living in Zambia? And both of them said quite similar things. So they said... Um, our garden or the grounds so the site we live on site and it's 11 acres so imagine a nine-year-old boy and a six-year-old boy on 11 acres of ground and they come in from school occasionally do their homework um, and then go off and we don't see them for about two hours it's brilliant um, and um, yeah so that's fun um, what else did you say your friends so we live on site with Emmanuel um, there's a, another one of the staff um, and his children, and we also have a house that we rent out on site, and they all have children of the similar age. So we have lots of friends, don't we? And the weather. So it's always like that, okay? It's, um, apart from when it's about to do a downpour, it's always like that. 
and, it, and it's beautiful. And the thing that we didn't like about living in Zambia was that there was no snow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so we missed the snow. Um, but yeah, Zambia's great. It's a really great country. Obviously, it has its challenges, um, but it's great. And our boys like it, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I think I'm done. Is that all right? Well, good morning. Um, Claire started her introduction by saying it's great to be back here, and it genuinely is great to be back here. When, when I, I talk about Milford Baptist Church, this is, this is what our third, 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 maybe fourth time here. Actually, when I, I come here, I have to remind myself this is not the church I grew up in. I don't know if you get the sense of what I say. When we walk in, it feels like the church we've always attended. Um, the welcome we have here is better than any church I've ever been in, including the church I grew up in. Um, so when, actually, I think it was, I, I walked in this morning, and I think it was, was Fred, forgive me if I've got your name wrong. Um, Fred said, how does it feel to be home? And I genuinely thought he meant home at Milford Baptist. And, and he said, no, no, home in England. I said, it's, it's wonderful. The weather is what I've been particularly looking forward to. Um, <laughs> So I'm um, just putting Ian on the spot a little bit. Um, I've asked Ian if you could just put up one of the, the slides from, from Claire's presentation and one of all my colleagues, and it will become clear why, um, why I've asked him to do that a little bit later. Richard, in his generous introduction to us, described us as ambassadors for Milford Baptist, and I just love that idea. Um, Richard, I'm pleased that you remember so clearly what I preached about last year when I was here. <laughs> Um, as I'm sure everybody here does. But the, the idea of being citizens of heaven, being ambassadors of heaven, and I also love this idea that we are ambassadors for Milford Baptist Church. And actually, that is, that is genuinely how we feel. We feel every day that we are ambassadors. And um, just before the, the service, Richard handed me his, his hastily prepared service schedule for today. And I said, are you... Uh, Richard, you're not going um, to get Claire and I to stand up and en embarrass us with a load of interview questions and he said no no I'm sure you can stand up and embarrass yourself just perfectly so um, the gift of encouragement there I am um, so I don't want to disappoint Richard any longer and I'm going to start embarrassing myself I want to start with a question okay and this is a hands up question this could either go brilliantly or you could ruin the whole of the rest of my sermon so please be as compliant as possible um, what I'd just like to see is a show of hands of anybody who's ever been a missionary There's a, there's a few there, seven, eight, nine, ten, something. My wife hasn't put her hand up. <laughs> I don't know whether I should be worried about that. Has anybody ever been a missionary? Um, Claire and I were once leading... Uh, sorry, um, I was asked, did I want the lapel mic or the, the, the lectern mic? I walk around a lot when I'm, I'm talking. So I apologise if you find that difficult to follow, but it's something that I can't help. Um, Claire and I were once leading a youth team in the South African bush. And on that team was a young American girl, probably about 15 or 16 years old. And we were talking, and she, she said to me, tell me, what do missionaries do? And I said, well, this missionary is a project manager. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand what I'm asking. I'm asking, what do missionaries do? And what I want you to bear in mind, I was climbing a mountain. It was 38 degrees. 
in old money, that's about 200 Fahrenheit or something. It was 38 degrees. I was with a bunch of precocious American kids. Now, in terms of my happy place, that wouldn't even make the top 100. So I said with as much grace as I could manage at the time, I said, you've said I don't understand what you're asking. You don't understand what you're asking. I will say I went back later and unpacked this a little bit. I said, you don't understand what you're asking. You ask what missionaries do. Well, I'm telling you, this missionary is a project manager. That missionary over there is a cook. That missionary over there is a trainer. That missionary is a builder. That missionary is a Bible teacher. That missionary is a maths teacher. You ask what missionaries do. I've just told you what missionaries do. The common thing that linked all those people together was Christianity. There was a white, a white British extracted South African there. There was an Africana. There was a Zulu warrior and his Cape Malay wife. There was a Sutu guy. There was a brace of Texans. There were two pasty Brits. A cook, a trainer, a project manager, a builder, a pastor, a teacher, a gardener, a mechanic, an IT teacher a workshop manager. What brought that group of people together? What was the common denominator? The common denominator was Christianity. So, so the answer in my time of grace that I gave to that young girl was both completely true and woefully inadequate. And I, I said, actually, uh, I went back and I apologised to her and I said, you know, I was, I was hot and grumpy. It was eight in the morning and you hadn't given me a gallon of coffee. I, she was moderately irritating as well in my defence. But what, <laughs> when, when God worked on me a little bit, I went back and I apologised to her and, and I said, I want to unpack that. I said, when I told you this missionary is a project manager, what that means is I used the skills and talents that God has given me and that I have learned I use those in the service of God. We were fed that night by a missionary using her skills to cook. We were taught in a building built by a missionary, by a missionary using his skills to unpack the Bible, on a plot tended by missionaries, on a farm farmed by missionaries. Do you get what I'm saying here? People have this idea of missionaries that we tramp about in the bush, converting people. And some do that. We have friends who do that. But that's the minority. The, this idea of missionary, the term mission, missionary, comes from the Latin missio, which is a military term, mitier, which means to send, particularly as an envoy, as a soldier. Miss, missionary just means somebody who is sent, an ambassador. So thank you for starting uh, your introduction with that. A missionary is an ambassador. And I, just before we get into Joel, and I promise I'm going to try and make Joel relevant to what I've just said, um, I want to look at Matthew 28. Um, Matthew, can anybody actually tell me what Matthew 28:19 is? I think everybody here could probably tell me what John 3:16 is, but Matthew 28:19. Thank you. You have not let me down. Matthew 28 is the Great Commission. Jesus says, therefore. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's the rallying call for Christianity. One of the most important verses in the Bible, along, I would suggest, with John 3.16 and Matthew 22.37. Jesus says, Since all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, 
go and make disciples of all nations. In, in the Greek, this was originally written, and actually in English is a fairly limited language, and I don't want to give the impression that I speak Greek, because I don't, but much more intelligent people than me do speak Greek, and I'm, I'm taking their advice on this one. In English, we have the present tense, go. It's an imperative. It's a, it's a single thing. Now, in Greek, the, the word that's translated go is a present continuous. It's more like, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. It's not go. It's as you are on the journey, make disciples of all nations. That's that, the Greek word that's used there. Um, Christianity is not an end point. Christianity is not something we get to. Christianity is a journey. And I spoke last year about being citizens of heaven, being on a trajectory in our life, all the time coming closer to Christ. It's a journey. And while we're on that journey, as we are going, the Christian call, the Great Commission, is to sweep people along with us. That is what being a missionary is. It is sweeping people along the journey that you are making towards Christ. We're all sent out. We are all missio Christians. The idea of Christian and missionary being inseparable is false. Christians are missionaries. Missionaries are Christians. Actually, Claire and I rarely use the term missionary. We dislike the term missionary. We don't like being described as missionaries, which is why I was so happy to be described as an ambassador. The only time, literally the only time we describe ourselves as missionaries is when we get stopped by the police. (laughs) We are law-abiding citizens, but the police in Zambia, especially when they see a white person, are very keen to find anything they can that's wrong with the car so they can find or or ask for a bribe. In fact, we were travelling back from from Lusaka on that five-hour journey and we were stopped by the police, as we always are. Can I have your licence, please, sir? Yes, there's my licence. Where are you going? I'm going to Indola. Oh, are you a farmer? Now, that question has baggage with it. Are you a farmer means are you a rich white farmer? (coughs) So she's got my licence. She starts to walk around the car to check it. And I said, no, ma'am, I'm a missionary. And she said, okay, thank you, on your way. And it was, it was literally that blatant. Um, so we only use the word missionary in a very cynical sense when we need to get out of a fine. But anyway, not, <clears throat> notwithstanding that point, the question, what does a missionary do? It's simple. A missionary is a Christian. So I'm going to ask that question again. Who here has been a missionary? Thank you. Okay. Let's get into Joel. Joel 2, 28 to 32. So the prophet Joel says this. He says, And afterwards, or in the end time, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Actually, I had my 40th birthday two days ago, so I'm looking forward to my dreams starting. (laughs) Joel, Joel was probably writing in what, what scholars call the, the late pre-exile period. Um, so this is probably just before the Jews were taken into exile in Babylon, and about 400 or so years before Christ came along. Could be as much as 600 years, we don't know. But anyway, the passage is a clear prophecy about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I want to, to stop for a moment and think about the context of the Old Testament here. So the Old Testament basically charts the developing relationship of man 
with God. Obviously, it's, it's very much more complicated than that, but it's a developing relationship from polytheism, where everybody had their own household gods, polytheism, belief in many gods, and a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, basically, on this trajectory to a belief in one god and a settled agrarian pastoral lifestyle. Okay, so that, the, that's what the Old Testament kind of charts, is, is that development of man. And during that time of development, the number of believers in this radical idea of a single God increased and became the nation of Israel. And actually, by the time Israel settled in the Promised Land, we know there were about 600,000 men and probably about double that women and children. So we're looking around 1.5 million to 2 million people, we are told, um, entered and settled in the Promised Land. Um, And at the end of Deuteronomy, after the 40-year journey, uh, Moses stands on the mountain and he views the promised land that he himself will never step foot into. And he dies, leaving Joshua to lead the people those final steps. Now, in, in all that time, the common people were never given direct access to God. There was always an intermediary. In fact, the Bible tells us that... Um, the only person that we know saw God face to face was Moses. And uh, uh, did I note where that was? Exodus 33, um, we're told that Moses spoke to God as a friend would speak to his friend. That's the only person we know of that saw God's face. Everybody else had an intermediary. And in fact, when Moses went in to meet with God, the, the entrance to the tent was barred with a pillar of smoke so that the common people could not, um, could not hope to enter. Uh, In fact, the presence of God was described as being so awesome that you would die from being in it. You know, even today, um, once a year, the Jewish high priest will enter the Holy of Holies to to do the the ministration that is required of his office. Um, And he enters with a rope tied around his ankle so that if he accidentally dies while in the presence of God, his juniors can pull him out without entering themselves into the presence, even today. The presence of God was thunder, it was lightning, it was smoke, it was fire, it was awesome, so awesome that it meant death. And in the whole of the Old Testament, until we get to the prophets, the Spirit of God is mentioned twice that I can find. It's mentioned in reference to soldiers who felt the Spirit of God come over them as they prepared for war. Judges 3.10, <coughs> Excuse me. the Spirit of God came on him, so he became a judge and went to war. Chronicles 12.18, the Spirit came upon Amasi and he said, we are with you, David, we will join your army. And then we get to the prophets, and the Spirit of God is talked about. The Spirit of God is given, uh, given theologically to the people. Micah 3. As for me, I am filled with the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and might to declare sin. And of course, our friend Joel, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. You see, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God was not really talked about. The people were kept forcibly separate from God, in fact communicating with him through intermediaries. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are one of those people. 
You've grown up under the regime that we call Judaism. You've had it drilled into you from birth that being in the presence of God meant death, that God was remote and unapproachable. And then you read this passage from Joel. What do you think? I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. I will pour out my spirit on all people. What do you think? There's a a short story by a favourite author of mine, H.G. Wells, which many people will have read. Um, And it's called The Country of the Blind. And in it, he describes this this mythical valley in Ecuador. And a a climber uh, in Ecuador falls into this valley. And he finds himself in the country of the blind, which has been completely separate from the outside world. And all the inhabitants of the valley are blind from birth. They don't even have context to understand sight. They've got no language to describe sight. And moreover, because they've never had sight, and for generations nobody's even known about sight, they can't imagine what sight is. Even if they had sight, they can't imagine what it would add to their lives. And actually... The protagonist of the story tries to describe to them what sight is, but they lack the capacity to even understand what he's telling them. He describes colours, and they accuse him of heresy and madness. He describes being able to see the other side of the mountain, and they say he's worthy of death for his heresy, because how can you see as far as something beyond what you can touch? And eventually the king of this land decides the only way to cure this poor devil of his heresy is to put him to death. He says he will commute the death sentence if the man will commit to having his eyes removed because that is the source of his madness. These eyes of his are the source of this madness. Anyway, he eventually he escapes, the hero escapes. As he's climbing the mountain to get out of this valley, he sees a rock fall on the opposite mountain that's going to destroy the village. And he calls out to warn them, but his, his efforts to warn them are ignored Because in their worldview, he can't possibly know about events that are too far away for him to touch. So they think this is part of his madness, and the village is destroyed. The village is destroyed by its ignorance and its refusal to accept there is something outside of their four senses. Now, put yourself in the position of the blind king of that country. you're trying to comprehend something totally incomprehensible to you. You don't have the capacity to comprehend it. You don't have the vocabulary to describe it. You don't have the experience to accept it. That's the the position you would be in as a 4th century BC Jew, listening to the words of the prophet Joel. He's telling you that the Spirit of God, which you don't know about, will be poured out on all people, which is theologically physically, culturally, logically impossible, and all people will prophesy, which is heresy. I'm telling you this so you can get a sense of just how radical this prophecy was at the time. We, we now are post-Pentecostal Christians, or we are Pentecostal Christians. We are, we are living in the age of the Spirit of God. Um, so... We can easily skip over this verse. Very easily we can skip over this verse. Ah, the Holy Spirit, yes, we know all about that, that's fine. But put yourself in the position of the people hearing this for the first time. It's radical, it's unbelievable, it's shocking. 
It's heretical. So heretical, in fact, that the Jews are still waiting for that time to come. They don't realise it has already arrived. You know, when, when vehicles started to become mainstream a little bit before my lifetime, but certainly within Richard's lifetime in the, 19, in the 1920s, the, the, first, the first buses appeared on British roads and they were, they were limited by law to 20 miles an hour because there were very serious concerns that the air wouldn't be able to keep up with the bus and all the passengers would, would asphyxiate. When faster-than-sound planes were being discussed... There were papers published in credible scientific journals explaining why the laws of physics made that impossible. Now, for a few hundred pounds, anybody here could make a rocket in their shed which can break the sound barrier. And most of you probably travelled here faster than 20 miles an hour without choking to death. It's easy to forget how simple it is. It's easy to forget how easy it is from an age of enlightenment to look back to a previous age it's easy to forget how difficult it is to look forward to a new age. New things are always radical. So I don't want to make any bones about this. Joel's prophecy about the coming of the Holy Spirit is radical. It's radical. He is talking about the democratization of the Holy Spirit. Democratization means making something accessible to all people. Joel's talking about the democratization of the Holy Spirit, which was heretically radical when he proposed it. The coming of a time when God would speak to everybody. Telling of a time when all people could be in the presence of God, all people could prophesy, all people could know, understand, and speak to the living, of, living God. The democratisation of spirituality. A radical concept. And then somewhere around 450 years later, in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit that Joel promised arrived on the day of Pentecost. The tongues of, of fire signify the arrival, arrival of the Holy Spirit and the disciples start to prophesy. A crowd gathers with, we're told, 14 or so different nationalities, 14 different language groups, and everybody hears the message in their own language. And Simon Peter stands up and gives the first ever sermon that we know of in the Christian church. And he uses the words of the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Young men, young men will see visions. And I'm just going to skip on a few verses. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be deliverance, even as the Lord has said. And then he goes on to say, this prophecy today has been fulfilled in your understanding. The message of, of Acts and Joel is that old and young, men and women, workers and managers... We are all united in receiving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And by extension of that democratisation of spirituality, we are all involved in the working of the Holy Spirit. Jesus uses some of the same language in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be Filled. That word filled. In Acts, uh, the, uh, Acts chapter 2, it tells us the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were not touched by the Holy Spirit. They did not experience the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. There are no half measures. 
They were filled with the Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. In, in Revelation, um, there's this line, because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I will spit you out. God does not like lukewarm people. We are not touched by the Holy Spirit, my friends. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. God does not want us to be lukewarm. He wants us to be filled with overflowing with the full measure of the gifts he has for us. And he wants us to use those gifts in the service of the kingdom of God. We, we say to our colleagues in Zambia over and over and over again, we do not work for Mechanics for Africa. We work for the kingdom of God. The department is Mechanics for Africa. I am not the leader of Mechanics for Africa. God is the leader of Mechanics for Africa. I am his deputy. Wherever you work, you do not work for an earthly kingdom. You work for the kingdom of God. Your department is the church or the accountancy firm or the government or wherever. We work for the kingdom of God. Last, um, <coughs> excuse me, last Thursday, Claire and I had a meeting with the general manager of Jaguar Land Rover. And we were talking about MFA in the ministry because actually we're trying to form a, a cooperative partnership with Jaguar Land Rover. Um, and this, this kind of big, fat Africana guy who I would assume is not Christian, it never really came up, he said, why do you do it? And part of my long politician's answer was, because we are Christian. Because we are Christian. Now, and we did unpack that a little bit. And we say that unashamedly whenever we're asked that question. Why do you do this? Because we are Christian. And that, that answer isn't false enthusiasm. It's not over-spiritualization about Christianity. It's the simple, credible truth. And people are attracted to simple, credible truth. You know, Christianity is not complicated. Actually, at the end of this sermon, I'm going to summarise Christianity. I'm going to summarise the Bible in eight words that you can take away. You know, somebody once told me, if you can't explain the gospel to the child, you're overcomplicating it. My, my nine-year-old understands the gospel. It's simple. Christianity is simple. We don't have to make Christ credible. Christ is already credible. All we have to do is reveal his credibility. And we reveal Christ's credibility in what we do. Actually, a friend of ours... Uh, has uh, on his desk he has this little poster that says what you do shout so loud I can't hear what you say and I love that. that that is a message to live your life by Christ is already credible and we reveal his credibility in our words and our deeds and whether or not the hearer is Christian actually authenticity in word and deed is a very attractive thing to have we like to follow authentic people. <coughs> so, in Acts, Peter starts his sermon with Joel's words. In those times, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Following on from that, the rest of the book of Acts, any dream or vision that is talked about in the book of Acts has been given to people for the purposes of missionary strategy or for the purposes of motivating people to be missionaries. Every, every recorded dream or vision is about, uh, is about a missionary motivation, which is how I'm able to bring this whole thing back full circle to where I started. Claire and I are missionaries. 
But we are not missionaries because we've moved to Zambia to work for God. We are missionaries because we are Christians. Every person sat in this room is a missionary. Every person sat in this room is a missionary. I'm pretty sure that when Jesus said, as you are going, make disciples of all nations, I'm pretty sure that when he said that, what he had in mind is that we would go through our lives exercising our talents, exercising our skills, cooking, building, managing, whatever it is that we do, we'd exercise our skills and we'll do those things in unity with the Holy Spirit, revealing what a credible Christ-like life looks like. So Claire and I are missionaries, but that doesn't make us special. We're missionaries because we are Christians. Every single person on this slide, Ian, please. <coughs> every, every one of my colleagues on this slide that will be coming up is a missionary. Thank you. All of these guys are missionaries. These two guys here, they are building labourers. They are missionaries. Building something for the kingdom of God. It's these guys this side, they are guarding the kingdom of God. Famwell at the top there, he's the workshop manager in the kingdom of God. Every single person here is missionaries. They probably don't think of themselves as missionaries, just like you don't probably think of yourselves as missionaries, but you are missionaries. They are missionaries. The word missionary should be retired because it's redundant. If you are a Christian, by default, that should mean you are a missionary. A missionary to your school, to your community, to your friends, to your family. And you do that by living a credible Christ-like life and sweeping people along with you. What you do shouts as loud as what you say, but a credible and authentic life filled with the Holy Spirit is the best form of evangelism in my view. I said I would summarise the Bible in eight, eight words as I bring this to a close. In Matthew 22, I said the, the three most important verses of the Bible, Matthew 22, John 3:16, and uh, Matthew 28:19, I think. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by a Pharisee, what is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he said the second is like it, love, the Lord, uh, love your neighbour as yourself. In Matthew 28, Jesus tells the disciples to go and make more disciples. So God's instructions to us, summarised in eight words, love God, love people, go and make disciples. It's not difficult. Love God, love people, go and make disciples. That is the message of the Bible. That is what Joel was preparing for, the democratisation of spirituality, the giving the Holy Spirit to everybody. No longer are people set aside to be missionaries. Nobody needs to be set aside to be missionaries. We are all missionaries. The message of the Bible, love God, love people. Go and make disciples. Amen.